Welcome to Jay Madison's Rural America. It's a journey through the stories impacting rural economies and country lifestyles. Jay Madison's Rural America is also a production of Jefferson County Economic Development. Now here's Jay. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Jay Madison's Rural America. A little stutter there. It's early in the morning, and Ron and I are sitting here in my office getting ready to uh, have a great interview with the one, the only, Sean Hackett. He's the president of Hackett Financial Advisors and author of Hackett Ag Report. So we're really excited to have Sean on with us, and we're getting getting an early start to the day, Ron. Well, it is Friday, Jay, and uh, we got to get got to get the, the week finished up here. And uh, thought this would be a great opportunity to bring Sean on today to talk a little bit about what's been going on with markets, specifically milk markets. But uh, there's been a lot we haven't talked about it in a while. The world is in turmoil, and uh, the markets are. Uh, are demonstrating uh, that every pretty day. clearly. Yeah, yeah, every day, pretty clearly. So good morning, Sean. Uh, so are we talking to you down there in the great state of Florida? You are. Uh, it is a great state. It's typical weather for this time of year, hot, 99.99% humidity, but but beautiful right now, a gorgeous sun, sunrise, so can't, can't complain. Very nice. Well, thank you for getting up so early to join Ron and I, and it's very appreciated, sir. So, Ron, uh, you know, the dairy industry, I hear good things. I hear not so good things. Uh, it sounds like there's opportunity out there, but there's also a lot of volatility in the market. What's going on? Well, you know, here across the country, Jay, milk supply has been uh, has been long. When I mean long, there's just too much milk around the country. Sean can get into this a little more detail, but, uh, you know, cow numbers really haven't dropped. Uh, of course, we come off record prices last year. I always say uh, when dairy farmers have record prices, it's kind of like being an alcoholic. They get pretty drunk on those high prices, <laughs> right? So uh, that leads to too many cows, too much milk. Um <laughs> lots of uh lots of challenges um and but on the good side here in the northeast we're seeing significant investment and processing take place here of course great lakes cheese which uh you know we are fortunate to have great lakes cheese right here in adams new york with one of their production plants they're all over the u.s obviously but they're building a new plant in franklinville new york south of buffalo that will need 100 loads of milk a day that's pretty significant 100 loads of milk a day yes that is a phenomenally big and that will make mozzarella cheese there at that facility and then just recently Fairlife announced uh, plans to build a new production facility in Webster New York just east of Rochester that once it's up at full capacity, will be 80 tractor share loads of milk a day. That's a lot more milk that we're going to need here in New York, or at least now has a home here in New York. Absolutely. And, um, and of course, it creates some challenges because uh, here we are sitting here today with too much milk. Right. Um, and then two <clears throat> years from now, 18 months to two years from now, we will have a situation where we're going to have this increased demand. The other good thing about this Fairlife plant is it is a 
class one plant, which means it's going to produce fluid bottled milk, some of which are specialty uh, products, but uh, that will lift the overall price for all producers here in the, in the order one region. Nice. That's very nice. Um, so we're looking at two years out for both of those plants before they become out. Yeah, I think late 24 for Great Lakes Cheese. So about a year and three months uh, okay. on that one. And then probably late 25 yeah. on the Fairlife plant. Yeah. So that's going to create a ripple effect through the dairy industry here in New York as far as our farms go. Uh Will do you think that will open the door for expansions, growth, and so on? Yeah. So we just saw DFA. Uh, the letters just came out. They removed their base program as of December thirty first uh, here, two thousand twenty three. So that base program is uh, how would you describe it? What what what? Well, does that basically, mean? a farm had a production level that they could not exceed, and if they did exceed that, they took a uh, Reduce price on that milk that went over. In essence, a quota, correct, sort correct, of what we hear about correct. in Canada. Yes. Uh, to a degree, anyways. Yeah. So and, and we're seeing lots of consolidation in the industry, you know, and I think Sean can probably talk about that a little bit, too. Yeah. Sean, uh, what are you seeing out there in the dairy industry across the nation? And and just for our listeners, Sean provides financial uh, advising services, consulting services to farms, to agriculture across the United States. So he really does have his thumb on the pulse of what's happening out there in the ag industry. Well, as Ron alluded to, you know, dairy is notorious for partying too hard and then having a terrible hangover, which is what we're going through now. You know, the July milk price was obviously a tremendous hangover effect and you know, a lot of producers not able to pay their feed bill with a milk check in July just because the milk price was so far below the cost of production. So the way I kind of see it, with the Federal Reserve continuing to put pressure up on interest rates, and given the fact that a lot of this capacity in New York and elsewhere in the country is not likely to come online uh, for maybe a, you know, a couple of years, What's going to get the milk market going is to have a supply side response to the downside. Cold cow rates in the last reported month were the highest in the United States since 1986. So we're beginning to see the ripple effect of these low prices, these, these terrible margins starting to impact the decisions that dairymen are making on the ground. And even though production has been good in the first half of the year, we're going to start to see production really fall off in our view in the fourth quarter and onward and i think the milk market is beginning to sense that you know they might have taken this thing a little bit too far and they'd better bring prices back to at least something more reasonable or else they could be in a world of hurt in 24 25 when all this demand comes back in and we simply do not have the ability to turn the switch back on so i'm pretty optimistic that we've made a low here in july and that we're going to start working our way higher this last three dollar move higher spike trade in class three the first shot across the bow to the upside to suggest we we, we've, we finally have kind of turned the corner and we might be looking for some better trending markets here as we move into 24. so sean what uh, what's going on on the export side for dairy um you know we've seen like you said domestic uh demand falling a little bit here with 
you know, interest rates going up, the economy obviously kind of teetering on the edge. Um, and, you know, working middle class Americans really, you know, their budgets are really tight to, you know, manage their family and, and have enough money to, to live the way they're used to living. But, you know, so you got that side of it, but then you got the export side as well. And what's, what's going on there? What's interesting is, is that that's been one of the, the, the bright sides that the U.S. export market has been pretty good, especially Mexico. You've been really selling a lot to Mexico. From an international standpoint, the, the, the negative part is that China has not been importing a lot of milk powder. You know, they've tended to be the market that's driven the market higher. You know, if you look at the GTT auction prices, which tends to be where you see the Chinese demand up, has really been quite absent. But in June, we saw the first significant year-over-year increases in Chinese imports of milk powder, you know, for the first time in quite a long time. So I, I kind of feel that uh, from a from an international standpoint, we're going to start to see some better numbers coming out uh, of Asia, especially China. And the other thing that I'm really excited about is that African swine fever which has been really depressed the pork price in China and it's really caused a kind of a depressed meat protein price level in China. We've noticed in the last two weeks their hog price in China has taken off, which suggests that they might finally be on the other side of this. And we know the last two times we've gone through an African swine fever, post-African swine fever situation, we get into a meat protein shortage and it means that milk powder protein gets into very, very high demand in China. So we kind of feel that that's another bright spot to be looking at in the fourth quarter that could really drive GDT auction prices, which is really kind of drives the whole, you know, international price for dairy and for milk powder. So that's a bright spot that we're starting to see show up. I'm not that excited about domestic demand with the Fed continuing to put pressure on interest rates, but I would look for China to put more stimulus, they're in the opposite side. They're actually lowering rates and stimulus, and they might do a heck of a lot more here, you know, over the next few months. And that probably is where the milk market catches a demand side story, not from the domestic demand, but from international demand, it looks to me. Remember, the U.S. dollar has really fallen off here, Ron, pretty significantly. Um, and the longer we stay down or continue to trend down, which we think we're going to do, that continues to make our product and our prices more attractive and more competitive with international price. Yeah, and what uh, explain to the audience a little bit. There was a lot of news yesterday about the Japanese yen, some significant activity there. What's going on in in that currency market? Well, the Japanese, like every other country, you know, have way way too much debt, and so what they've been doing is they've been doing what's called yield curve control. That essentially means a central bank prints money and they buy the bonds to cap interest rates, so interest rates don't go higher because if you're a government that's highly indebted, interest rates go up. That means your interest payments go up and as a percentage of your total mm-hmm. budget. But it seems that the new central bank chairman of the Japanese bank um, is having a change of heart. And it looks like they're wanting to push or to pull back from yield curve control, let interest rates rise 
and create some increased consumer buying power by letting the yen start to rise. And that seems to be what's starting to happen. And that will further feed into, you know, the U.S. dollar devaluation that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Because remember, the dollar index is a combination of the euro, the British pound, and the Japanese yen. That's what the U.S. dollar index is really a measure of those three currencies relative to the U.S. dollar. Kind of like the stars are kind of lining up here. At the same time, you've got Europe and you've got New Zealand, Australia uh, pushing really hard with these green policies that basically are targeting their livestock industry, uh, specifically their dairy industry, you know, almost like what's, you know, it's a perfect storm here of a lot of things potentially happening that could really put the United States in a position to kind of be the place where everybody goes for food here in the next few years. Well, specifically for dairy, when I look at Europe, I mean, as you know, Ron, you know, they have some very, very tough policies on animal agriculture that are only going to get worse, um, including these other countries. But when I look at Europe, I look at um, New Zealand, I look at Australia, I I don't see anyone that could turn the switch back on when the prices go take off and this demand starts to pick back up Mm -hmm. other than the United States. So I kind of agree with you that we really could be in the driver's seat where we may actually finally be in a position where we're able to actually grow production and get a higher price because the rest of the world is more focused on draconian environmental policies far greater than we are here in the United States. So it's actually a pretty good outlook beyond the very short term for the long term picture for profitability on the dairy farm. We might actually get ourselves into the right spot that we haven't really been in for quite some time. Sean, a quick question on that, uh, following up on what Ron was asking. You know, with what we're seeing uh, from these foreign governments as far as these draconian environmental regulations, are they in essence forcing or pushing uh, their countries, their people into global potential global food shortages? That's the way I see it. You know, I mean, when I'm looking at what these policies are doing, they're purposefully making farming unprofitable. They're purposefully taking land and animals out of production permanently um, at a time that, you know, weather volatility that we've talked about on your show before, Jay, right. um, you know, is making it very difficult to consistently grow quality food around the world. It just seems to me that they're, they're, they're pushing this string um, and, and taking a situation that's already very difficult on top of the geopolitics that's also making one of the biggest bread baskets in the world in Ukraine offline potentially, you know, it's almost like they're just, they're, it's, they're adding a, a final fuel to the fire to maximize what unfortunately could be, you know, a really significant humanitarian uh, crisis here. Um, and I would, I would imagine at some point that people push back. If you run out of food, we've already seen this in places like Bangladesh, where they decide to stop using fertilizer. When they run out of food, those people find who's responsible. And if they believe the politicians are responsible, then we have civil unrest and we have revolutions. And I think that's unfortunately where we might be heading into. All of this, by the way, is inflationary for agricultural prices, 
especially those in animal agriculture like dairy. So, and Sean, you know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about China. The one, you know, two areas of the world that are significantly important but don't get a lot of attention are Africa and India. And what's, what's going on in, in those areas of the world currently? Well, India is a very interesting country. They've been growing, like, you know, they've been the strongest growing economy for many, many years now. And they're actually the fifth largest economy in the world. Last year, they curtailed exports of almost every agricultural market that they are a large exporter with. And just recently, they banned rice exports. I saw and that. They, yeah. and, they, and they banned wheat exports earlier in the year. And I think it's happening, Ron and Jay, is that they're getting to a point where they simply, the domestic demand for food and the commodities that they need is outstripping their ability to produce. And the world has been counting on India to be this large exporter of these key agricultural products. And I believe we're transitioning to where they're going to be off the market for exports and potentially becoming a net importer for the foreseeable future. That would be an it, that would be as significant as China coming online in the early 2000s and really coming into the scene and becoming a net importer of ag prices. I really think we're at a potential inflection point. In dairy specifically, they've become a net importer of milk for the first time in their country's history, um, something that would have been unheard of if you told someone that could happen five years ago. So what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, what you're sharing with us, uh, Sean, is that there are things going around, going on around the world that are of major significance. Some things that we've never seen before or seen in most of our lifetimes. You know, the bombing of Ukraine, the destruction of their their agricultural industry, their, their ports, and so on. Draconian environmental regulations that are being put in place by many European nations, uh, New Zealand, uh, uh, and so on, that are uh, reducing at, at least, at a minimum, reducing their animal agricultural industry, which is in turn reducing their food production. And then you have a country like India, a major, major part of our global economy, as you said, an exporter, or they were an exporter of a lot of agricultural commodities. And now they're they're putting the brakes on those exports and starting to keep those home because they can't produce enough food to feed their people. So we really are heading into maybe something that, in most of our lifetimes, uh, none of us have ever seen, and that's a significant global food shortage. Yeah, and, and you know, leading into all of this, Jay, I mean, you, I think you sum, summarized it perfectly. Um, remember, we used to have a lot of stockpiles lying around the world for a rainy day. I mean, that was the whole strategy. And then when we got into the efficient market theory of using capital efficiently just in time, <clears throat> Uh, you know, agriculture of just you know making sure everything is we just have enough because everyone's going to get along and trade and and we and that then when we had COVID and we had this disruption and then we have this Ukraine war everyone realized what happens when you have just in time inventory system come offline and now 
those that need the food don't have any reserve or any buffer stock to get through a rough patch. Every country that's in that position now wants a stockpile of six months, 12 months, 18 months. So not only are we, do we have all these factors coming together, but we also have a food system that we have no stockpile reserves for a rainy day. And, 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 and that's another factor. And one of the reasons I think India is taking the track that they are is they don't want to be a country that doesn't have a reserve when, when their production comes up short. And it's really going to be a contagion effect um, where the stockpiling becomes more. It's not how much you pay for food. It's, it's that you just get access to the food to begin with. So price will be secondary to getting access. Now, it's very interesting. And, of course, you know, we, we haven't talked about South America, but significant uh, turmoil in South America from a geopolitical standpoint uh, you know, I got a text message from a young man who spent uh, about a year and a half on our farm who farms with his father down in Brazil. And a couple weeks ago, he just sent me a text message and, and, you know, asking how everybody was and said, you know, all kinds of corruption. Uh, you know, they're not sure they're going to survive another year down there producing crops. Uh, inputs are super expensive. Uh you know, it's just it's just the whole country's in turmoil. They've they've gone through here. The current president was in prison, and now he's the president of of Brazil. And you know, I think I think his last comment was, you know, we're headed headed to be like Venezuela if if we don't get this turned around. And uh, you know, so I think a lot of the world, you know, is kind of looking at South America and Argentina, you know, Brazil specifically, and saying, you know, hey. They got the potential ability to produce food, but with this geopolitical unrest down there, they may not be able to step up to the plate either. Well, I I spent uh, last year. I went on a, a coffee uh, tour in the heart of the of the ag belt in uh, Brazil, and I had a lot of conversations when Lula was the president the last time, and what life was like in agriculture the last time, and how the rule of law. I mean, they were telling me how farms were just being taken by the government without any recourse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of what you're referring to, Ron, about the uh, kind of a Venezuela where, the, where there's just it's the wild, wild west and anything goes. But it's, it doesn't promote investment in the ag sector. It doesn't promote um, positive investment in future production. And whenever the government gets a heavy hand in agriculture and production, I think you know, Ron, production tends to, to stagnate or even go down because of the lack of efficiency. Because mm-hmm. produ- typically governments don't really have a very good idea how to grow food like farmers do. Correct. Yeah, that's for certain. That's yeah. for certain. So let's let's swing this back here to the United States. We've we wandered off talking about the the global perspective. We've been all around the world. We've been all, literally all around the world. Um, so let's swing this back here to the United States. Uh, our dairy industry looking like we're coming into a positive period. Is that is that the I right? I think that's way? a fair statement. Yep. Okay. Um, what about uh, our other food production, you know, the, the commodity crops, the grains, and so on? Where, where are we at there? Basically, what, 
what we're seeing, Jay, here domestically is, uh, you know, a lot of uh, gyrations in weather. Uh, you know, we've got the Northern Plains, uh, Eastern Montana, Western Dakotas, uh, Southern provinces of Canada, Saskatchewan, basically burning up. Crops have been destroyed. We've got significant challenges in the Midwest with crop production. Um, however, some of that has leveled out a little bit. They've okay. gotten some rain, but they're in this heat dome right now. I think there's a lot of concern about the soybean crop and what this heat that they're experiencing. They're in that critical stage of setting pods on soybeans in the Midwest right now. And they're talking 105, 107 degree heat indexes out there the next several days Crazy. with no rain in sight. You know, so it definitely is challenging. And like Sean said, at the same time, uh, our stockpiles are, are basically gone. Um, you know, it, it appears we're out of old crop soybeans. So we really can't afford for this soybean crop that's growing in the field right now to get to get injured by you know, significant weather event. So that's, you know, and that, those all have, that volatility has an impact on the livestock industry, obviously. Right, right. Um, you know, and what it costs to feed animals. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday that, and we were talking about this effort around the world to limit livestock production. And when we really think about it, the dairy industry the beef industry, the pork industry are really the backbone of our agricultural, overall agricultural industry. They create demand for the grains that are grown. They provide food, you know, protein. But that's that's kind of where we are, Jay. Um, you know, we're, it, as we said, the, the stars are pretty much lining up here to, uh, to really put the U.S. food uh, production system in the spotlight around the world. Yeah, it, it does look like there's great opportunity out there for the United States uh, to to ramp up our production of the world's food supply. Um, I do worry about the environmental uh, regulations here in the United oh, States. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we talk about these draconian policies in Europe, and, and I mean, think about what's going on right here. Yeah. And, I mean, we're... We're tiptoeing on the edge of those things here. Yeah. Um, you know, when you start talking about limiting fossil fuel production the way we have and talk about, you know, regulations on the livestock industry, you know, we're we're tiptoeing out there at all-time lows here and this heat dome that's coming into the Midwest and its impact on potential new crop soybean production and the fact that we have, you know, our livestock industry here, pork, dairy, beef, really being the backbone of our our agricultural production system here. And then here we are even tiptoeing on the edge of some of those draconian uh, um, policies. So, um, so Ron, uh, if you were to wrap up, if you were to summarize the conversation with Sean and, and how things uh, went and what we're looking at for the near future, what, what would that be? So I really think, Jay, that that you know we need to stay focused here and as an agricultural production system agriculture in our region here in the northeast we need to stay focused on the future we need our our producers to be thinking about the future and what the future of ag potentially looks like here and uh, you know we have this new investment coming 
And it's going to take planning and it's going to take uh, cooperation, mm -hmm. um, you know, with all agencies like yourself here at, at IDA. Um, you know, it's it's not going to be something we want to just jump into, but, um, you know. What, I, what is that investment? What, what are you talking about, Ron? Well, I think you're going to see, the, you know, the need for farms to grow. Okay. Uh, you're going to see consolidation because we have an aging population out there of ag producers. You know, so how does that, do we have enough young people coming into the industry? Mm -hmm. Where's our labor force going to come from? Right. And that, and that is one of the, I think one of the greatest challenges that we face is that workforce issue. Yeah. You know, where yeah. are we going to bring that new workforce from? Or how do we utilize new technology to um, to replace that workforce? Right. You know, uh, right. trying to ramp up the technology, like we talked about last on the last yeah, show. Yeah, with the precision ag. Yeah, with so. precision agriculture. So I think we're at an interesting time, a dangerous time, but also a time full of opportunity for agriculture here in the United States in that we're seeing lots of things happening across the world that are not good, potentially a, a significant decrease in the global food supply because of some of the things that are happening. And but it creates opportunity for agriculture here in the United States if our government doesn't curtail that, um, you know, a, a, a significant opportunity for the United States to become more of the world's breadbasket. That's correct. So it's it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see everything that's happening. Yep. Well, Ron, I think, uh, unless yeah. you've got something else. Uh, no, good uh, good opportunity here to wrap up. Sorry we lost Sean there, but, uh, uh, you know, we do appreciate Sean's expertise. He's a, yeah. he's a world of knowledge. Yeah. So. yeah, it was fun. He's on the road traveling, so yeah. those things happening yeah. happen when you're traveling. So. so now it'll be your job to clean this up. Uh, yes, we'll, <laughs> we'll clean it up and make it sound like it might be professional. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, thank you very much for joining Ron and I here on Jay Madison's Rural America. And make sure you tune in all the time to uh, hear what issues and what topics are going on in agriculture. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for tuning in to Jay Madison's Rural America. Make sure to join us weekly. If you have any questions about the show, call Jay at 315-782-5865. For more information, visit www.agricultureevents.com or jcida.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to Jay Madison's Rural America.